0: You don't do a lot of New Year's resolutions. Is that right?
1: No, I really don't. And not for any real, there's there's no real reason behind it. I just haven't. A lot of people do make resolutions. And in fact, found this article that,
0: talks about each of the United States' most popular New Year's resolutions this year.
1: I would assume there's a fair amount of weight loss, dietary stuff on there, it seems, as I'm kind of scrolling through the list. So that makes sense. The state of Alaska, they're, they're looking to get better sleep. Well, I thought it was dark like half the year. What else do you need? My
0: favorite, though, is the state of New Mexico. Their their most overall New Year's resolution this year is to get a
1: raise. If it was that easy, why do we not just all, you know, well, my New Year's resolution is going to be to, you know, be taller. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast
2: dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts.
1: And welcome to Touchpoint 2021. No, actually, <laughs> it's, just, it's just episode 205, but it is the first time we're recording an episode in 2021. The first episode of the of the year. Well, that is Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith. And of course, we are very thankful that you, the listener, are here with us to start another calendar year. Let's see. Doing the math, we have produced podcasts in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, and now 2021, which is the fifth Calendar year, if you will, uh, that we will have produced a podcast in. We are excited uh, to kick that off. We're excited that you're here listening, that you've been with us all this time. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, And whether it's your first time or not, we encourage you to uh, pop over to the website, touchpoint.health. You can learn a little bit more about the episode you're listening to, the show you're listening to, or other shows and episodes on the network that are hosted by our other friends, Dr. Brian Bartabedian. Craig Matthews, the fine folks over at True North Customs, et cetera. So we encourage you to do that. While you're there, sign up for the TPS report. Weekly email that comes out. It comes out every Monday. It's going to have five news stories that we've pulled together as show hosts across the network. So it's a quick read. I also have some quick links to some uh, Twitter posts that we find interesting. Uh, you know, the new episodes from the week before, all that kind of fun stuff. We encourage you to sign up for that. Obviously, rate, review, subscribe wherever you happen to be listening and uh, tell a friend. So we're going to pause for just a minute, let you bounce out there and do that and then uh, be back with today's episode. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors.
0: Sure is, and Reed, consider this, 86% of patients today read online reviews, and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating.
1: Demand, they demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty.
0: And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com touchpoint. That's reputation.com touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. We definitely have talked a lot over the, the previous year about the adoption of technology, telemedicine, uh, other types of technology within health systems. You know, digital technology, it's coming rapidly within health systems, a lot caused by the necessity of responding to the pandemic. But in turn, it also leads to the fact that many organizations are now being driven into a sort of a digital maturity life cycle.
1: As we've talked about for the better part of a year now, the adoption of technology obviously catapulted forward quite a bit. So, yeah, I mean, here we are. And now it's, you know, how do you make it all stick? How do
0: you make it all stick is the ever-present question. So today we're going to talk a little bit about some of the elements within an organization that can lead to long-term digital adoption and also talk about, you know, some other elements, you know, the different types of digital transformation there are. And we're going to round out the podcast today with a really great interview I had recently with uh, someone that, that spends a lot of time working with organizations on accreditation of their digital programs. So this promises to be a really interesting episode.
1: Jumping in, the first article that we're going to uh, talk a little bit about titled Uncovering the Connection Between Digital Maturity and Financial Performance is from the folks over at Deloitte. This is one of their Insight articles. They talk primarily in this article about the idea that uh, digitally mature companies enjoy a wide range of specific benefits arising from all their digital transformations that include, but go well beyond the bottom line. You know, I think everything ultimately leads
0: to the bottom line. But you know, mm-hmm. in particular, they're they're kind of highlighting here uh, improved product quality, maybe improved customer satisfaction, even looking at reduction of environmental impact, or maybe streamlining processes. And lastly, not to be overlooked, is promoting better uh, accessibility and diversity among the workforce using digital tools and, and digital transformation efforts.
1: So the article goes on to outline seven digital pivots. I like that, digital pivots. Outline seven digital piv- pivots uh, that can propel an organization towards uh, the aforementioned digital maturity. Let's address those seven really
0: quickly. And we encourage people to go deeper into the article because they actually explain these much further and give some really great examples. So the first digital pivot could be the desire to uh, develop a flexible secure infrastructure. We've talked a lot about you know implementing cloud architecture within organizations. And even when now with a distributed workforce, people working from home, that requires sort of that secure digital infrastructure to align to whatever the latest working conditions are.
1: Yeah. The next uh, digital pivot is data mastery. As you would imagine, that's obviously something that and we've even talked about the need to invest in this space, both from a manpower and from a, a knowledge standpoint, obviously, to understand and, and be able to you know, make sense out of what's happening. Uh, you got to have data mastery.
0: Related to that is you got to have the workforce that's there to respond and understand that data, but also newer digital competencies. So it's really looking at your digitally savvy, open talent network of people that you can actually utilize. It could be existing or new talent that
1: you attract into your organization. the next one on the list is ecosystem engagement. You've got your bingo cards out, and so this is you know talking about the idea of being able to work with external partners like R and D organizations, maybe some tech incubators, etc., to try to source and find technology and in that intellectual property, people, etc., to to grow and innovate. Moving on, well, like we said, there's seven. So this is the uh, fifth out of the seven.
0: Intelligent workflows. That's really looking at your processes and retooling them and actually introducing things like AI and other things to create workflows that are become more intelligent, a little bit flexible for changes in the environment, that sort of thing. And that allows you to free up resources for higher value work.
1: Number six, unified customer experience. So, being able to kind of deliver on the the promise of that seamless experience to the consumer, built on the uh, the entire, I guess, roadmap across the uh, across the company, coordinating those digital and in-person interactions or human interactions, I guess.
0: Absolutely, and you can see as we go through these, they get more and more progressively complex, right? Which leads to the seventh and final one. Business model adaptability, and that's really expanding your organization's business models and revenue streams to align around what that unified customer need is. Finding new markets, finding ways to retool your organization. These are pivot points, internal pivot points at an organization
1: that can help organizations to perform Better financially. They go on to talk about that one big reason lower maturity organizations could be missing out on growth and innovation is they aren't using digitally enabled business models. Hmm, digitally enabled business models. A lot of bingo. A lot
0: of bingo going on. Again, this article kind of highlights some different examples of organizations that are doing that. And not surprisingly, many of those examples are not in healthcare itself, though. What they want to underscore here is, though, that digital transformation is about both doing old things better and faster and cheaper, and then also doing new things that weren't possible before. And all of this, if you align this together... Can help you understand and drive digital for cost savings, for efficiency, for inevitably bottom line return.
1: So they go on to talk about how leaders should understand how to maximize each of these digital pivot points. You know, again, several examples. You know, within the the unified customer experience, uh, they say, for example, having all those omni-channel touch points for those diverse interactions while capturing the voice of the customer and having a 360 degree view of the customer relationship to help the organization to better understand preferences, behaviors, uh, tendencies, I guess, things like that. And, you know, when you think about that, this is a very complex recommendation here, but
0: being able to tap into your customer needs is going to be very helpful. Even when you look at something like a flexible, secure infrastructure pivot. Two of the three most important leading practices, which are cloud cost management and optimization, and also automating provisioning and operations of a cloud infrastructure, that demonstrates the growing importance of automation in managing cost and complexity across your environment. Even the most simplest of these digital pivot points can lead to fruitful uh, digital results.
1: Finally, one of the last examples: the intelligent workflow uh, pivot. We talk about establishing an automation uh, center of excellence. Can you imagine having an automation center of excellence first off. <laughs> A- an automation center of excellence helps develop uh, automation expertise, as you would imagine, that can be leveraged throughout the organization. Also, supports the consistency uh, in developing and implementing automation efforts tracking, reporting, et cetera, and managing the compliance with obviously IT standards and things like that. By the way, this article is so dense. It's, it actually is a
0: result of a survey that they did across multiple different organizations talking about their digital maturity across multiple industries. They reiterate at the very end that digital transformation, although it's used often too much as a buzzword, it's no fad particularly now in the post-pandemic world, investments in digital transformations are continuing to increase at more than three times the rate of IT spending overall. That's mind-boggling to me.
1: Yeah, it's certainly not a fad. Uh, now, that is an awfully big number. You know, I, I can continue to see, you know, as we've done these surveys and, and some of the polling, even at Girard looking at, at digital and digital maturity, this is where people are starting to invest, you know, where people are starting to move dollars, where dollars are at least not getting cut if they're not, if they're not rising, they're, they're not getting cut at least. And so I think people are continuing to see this idea of innovation, investment, new business models. Certainly, uh, we've talked about telemedicine and virtual care an awful lot. You know, the need for a, a lot of this and somebody focused in this space, I think you'll start seeing more and more of this across hospitals.
0: It it makes sense, too, because oftentimes when you think about digital transformation, but there are different ways to look at it. You can look at some of the immediate short-term wins. Those smaller short-term wins, like even looking at infrastructure, even maybe doubling down and investing on a cloud-based infrastructure within your organization, you're going to see some early cost savings and efficiency gains. And that gives you sort of that immediate ROI, that immediate return on value, so to speak. But when you look at other things, like in the future, being able to shift. Your business models, being able to maybe evolve your business applications to meet those customer and stakeholder demands, that type of mental muscle to do that, so to speak, really builds up the resilience in order for you to thrive into the future. And if anything that this pandemic year has taught organizations is you need to build build up the resilience to change and be flexible because things can change overnight dramatically.
1: Absolutely right. Well, let's let's take a quick pause here and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about the types of digital transformation and what that kind of means for uh, you know, our strategies and whatnot.
0: Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. we wanted to dive in a little bit into the types of digital transformation. It seems interesting that we want to categorize digital transformation into different types, but it's very natural of us to want to do that. I actually found a really interesting LinkedIn article that was written by a gentleman called Andrew Anacone, who's a managing partner at TechNexus, And it was called the four types of digital transformation. And I think it lays out in a very nice way the different categorizations we can look at when we talk about digital transformation.
1: The first one that uh, he outlines is process transformation. So data analytics, APIs, machine learning, other technologies that offer corporations valuable new ways to reinvent processes through cooperation in in goals of lowering costs. So reducing cycle times, increasing quality, et cetera. It's, It's about a process, right? And he talks about the fact that you know, it can create really significant value in adopting technology in these areas as fast becoming table stakes, right? So, again, as you think about the evolution and transformation of digital, certainly, a lot of that is baked around a process. Yeah, and many of the ones that I work with in health systems when they're looking
0: at sort of transformation efforts are focused on just that because I think that is the low-hanging fruit, right? That's the easiest stuff that you can actually access. Mm-hmm. How do you improve this process? How do you make things more efficient? How do you synthesize you know, data to uh, get a better understanding of what's happening across your enterprise, right, across the health system? The second type of digital transformation is a business model transformation. Okay. So a little bit more complex process transformation focuses on like finite areas of the business business model transformation is aimed at the fundamental building blocks of how value is delivered within your industry or within your business. We always hear about Netflix reinventing video distribution or right. Apple reinventing music stuff like that. Those are some great examples of that. I think in, in any kind of boardroom, when you're talking about digital transformation, they always put those up as being models but the big thing here about this is, is that the reality is that this is much more challenging. There are efforts across healthcare right now, across health systems, to transform the business into something a little bit more strategic or even shifting our entire model. But we're being faced with a lot of outsiders in this space. Like, you know, think about like Walmart health and Amazon coming into the space that are very much more nimble about their business models that are kind of causing us a little bit of concern. Don't you think?
1: Yeah. And that really bleeds into this this third piece, the domain transformation uh, bucket. He talks in here about how, you know, technologies, uh, and especially new technologies are redefining products and services you may actually offer as a company. So it's blurring uh, you know, even industry boundaries in creating non-traditional competitors. And so, you know, you mentioned, you know, the Amazon, Walmart, you know, those types of folks that are you know, quote, unquote, getting into healthcare, he, he says what a lot of, you know, especially executives don't appreciate is the very real opportunity for these new technologies to unlock, you know, a whole new part of their business or their whole new part of their company and really put them in, in new markets even. Um, and so this is something that, you know, domain transformation is something that we're starting to see, especially in healthcare as we as we see these non-traditional competitors starting to show up. Yeah, they're, they're getting into our domain, so to speak. Right.
0: The last type of digital transformation is a cultural or organizational transformation. Think about this. Full, long-term digital transformation requires redefining your mindset and the processes and the talent and everything. I mean, this is a wholesale kind of transformation of your organization. As the author points out here, some of the best-in-class corporations recognize that digital requires agile workflows, testing and learning we hear a lot about you know failing fast and frequently right decentralized decision- making yeah. all of these things this is a whole organizational model and you know when you try to apply that in a very traditional uh, organization like a health system which often is very you know top-down managed or there's domain expertise etc this becomes very much more challenging for us. Yet the author puts forward here that digital transformation is sort of a an ongoing process. This could be a natural outcome if we do all of those other
1: three types. Uh, yeah, I would think so. I mean that that would seem to make sense, right? Because again, some of this stuff they talk about the process piece being table stakes, and then you talk about business model, or even you know now we're in new domains and doing new work, and you know that kind of thing. So I can see how some of this obviously all ladders up or kind of snowballs, if you will, into the cultural or organizational transformation. So it makes makes sense. Uh, before we go to the interview, let's talk a little bit about five
0: rules for digital strategy, right? For developing a good digital strategy when you start to look at transformation. And again, we're going to simplify it here. We know that there aren't just five rules, but in this particular case, we like the shorthand of this article we found from Boston Consulting Group, where they outline some basic rules. And the first rule here is to really assess the strategic impact of using your digital or implying your digital strategy. Good digital strategy starts with a rich understanding of where you are in the competitive environment and how likely it's going to change. Because new technologies can radically reshape business economics, it's important to think through the implications to your organization and your broader ecosystem of customer suppliers, like we talked about before, and ask, if we go about this digital transformation, what new offerings can we enable? What new processes can we empower? What new competitors?" can suddenly arise from this effort.
1: The next thing, and <laughs> this is an interesting one, but the second one he points out is to set uh, set your digital ambition high. Okay. I mean, that's good, <laughs> I guess, right? I hope we're setting our digital ambition high, but I'd be curious if we really do that as organizations or as an industry. But they talk about you know, some things like organizations that win at digital, uh, start by thinking big. And I know we at Gerard talk a lot about thinking big and, and, and whatnot, but whether seeking to strengthen existing advantages or tap new ones, think big. And the biggest digital strategies aspire to move the needle on value creation, especially true because in so many digital domains, uh, network effects uh, create winner take all situations. So a lot of first mover type advantage, if you will. And I think that we saw that play out a little bit
0: when there was this rapid domino effect of telemedicine last year. The organizations that are actually doing it well have had telemedicine in place for a while. Um, And, you know, and they set their ambitions much broader than that. And um, okay. So the third rule here is to place big bets. Not only do you have to think high, you have to bet high, right? In general, focusing on two or three of the most valuable use cases lends greater clarity, and delivers the best results. They even indicate in this article that short-term wins, like, you know, s- could be simple things like implementing AI to, to drive promotion or precision marketing or, you know, digital-driven cost reduction are going to help fund the journey to free up capital and release resources needed for more strategic imperatives down the road. So it's almost like, You want to use your short-term wins to place your bets on the big things that are going to happen down the road. Think about your digital as like a portfolio of offerings that you could do within your organization. Build up your investments towards
1: those big, big goals that you're trying to set up. Four out of five. Number four is to build new strategic muscles. As you would imagine. If you're setting your ambition high, placing big bets, things like that, it's going to call for some new capabilities, maybe even a cultural shift or multiple cultural shifts, depending on the year, <laughs> like 2020. So the organization needs to build new strategic muscles to complement traditional strengths, to ensure that new and old work together, uh, You know that you're agile, but yet in a coordinated way. Digital talent is critical, but... Uh, They say increasingly scarce, so it's just as important and often underestimated. But think about redeploying existing talent and skills to the initiatives that they uh, can make the most of.
0: And I like the idea of building your strategic muscles, right? Because this is a learning process. The last rule that they bring up here is managing that transformation in an active way. There is no need to completely rewrite transformation rulebook when it comes to digital. But there are going to be some issues that are going to need your attention, looking at your technology to make sure it's evolving right, making sure that the interrelations between those work right. So you have to revisit that underlying strategy often because things change. That's part of your transformation plan. That's part of managing things actively. And when you're talking about industries with slower moving technologies, which arguably us in the healthcare space have some slower moving technologies – that top-down strategy development approach works, but you need to plan out years in advance just in case some failure in the execution. And again, back to the point of like what just kicked off this article here and which we're going to talk about more in the interview coming up is telemedicine is a great use case there. You can implement a telemedicine solution really quickly, but if you're managing that transformation to digital health, It suddenly becomes a much more important digital effort that requires a lot more time. And many organizations now are kind of sitting back and starting to evaluate that telemedicine product to turn it into something like a telemedicine or virtual health platform.
1: And again, evolving business models, Um, much like I don't think we're all going to go back and work in an office like we have historically, at least not in the same way. I'm not saying we're not gonna go work in an office ever again. But one, I think a lot of folks are realizing like, you know what, it's quite honestly, it's not necessary. Like we're doing pretty well with this virtual setting. So maybe we repurpose a lot of the real estate to be used for clinical care versus uh revenue cycle or marketing or the business office or you know, whatever it is, you know, these non-clinical spaces. Same thing with the telemedicine, telehealth, virtual care kind of world. You know, We're still going to have people that are going to prefer to come in person, but you're going to have people certainly that uh, tried it and are trying it for the first time and realizing that uh, it actually works pretty well and this is what they would prefer to do. And when you're going
0: down this path of digital transformation and looking and evaluating your digital solutions, it becomes really important to understand that you're aligning the way you're doing it, which may be the first time you implement it, to best practices. That's how I actually got connected with the person that you're going to hear the interview with here, Dr. Sean Griffin, who's president and CEO of URAC in Washington, D.C. They're an independent accrediting organization. And they have spent many years, and you'll hear from this interview, Dr. Griffin, he uh, has many years' experience helping organizations look at digital and implement it in a long standing way. And to that end, he now works with organizations on looking at their accreditation program to ensure that best practices are being followed. And we had a really interesting interview, Reed. So after the break, let's listen in to to hear a little bit about Dr. Griffin and some of his thoughts and insights into that. And then we'll be back to wrap up the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Expert segment of the podcast, and today I am delighted to be talking with Dr. Sean Griffin. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Chris. It's wonderful to be here, and uh, and hope we have some fun.
0: Oh, I think we will. I think that this conversation will be very intriguing and interesting to people listening in. But before we get started on that, I would love for you to share a little bit about your background and your, your vast expertise and what you're doing today, which kind of sets up the topic, what we're going to talk about.
2: I'm Dr. Sean Griffin. I am a, trained as a family practice physician in the state of Iowa. I thought my career was going to be a small-town family doc. I used to say a county seat doctor in Iowa, um, but I was part of the first generation that went into medicine that grew up with computers, so actually went into practice uh, in St. Joseph, Missouri uh, about oh, 25 years ago now. And I was a full-time family medicine physician, had a bunch of partners practicing full-time and became chief medical information officer, which is the doctor who very often gets involved in the uh, technology implementation. So implementing the electronic medical record system in a 350-bed community hospital, 100 physician medical group. So I was a chief medical information officer. We implemented a large system called Cerner. We were a Cerner demonstration site. So people who'd fly into Kansas City to go to the Cerner headquarters would then go up the road and, and visit us at Heartland and see all the stuff that we were doing with the tool set. I was pretty successful there. Got hired away to, to go to Houston, Texas. So went from St. Joseph, Missouri, you know, 60,000 people to Houston, Texas, eight bajillion people um, into one of the busiest medical centers in the world in the Texas Medical Center. I was uh, Baylor College of Medicine's first chief medical information officer there working on implementing EPIC. I then moved over to the Memorial Hermann system where I joined their uh, physician network. I was chief quality and informatics officer there. I was no longer practicing. I was doing administrative work. We were very successful as a clinically integrated network and an accountable care organization. We grew to be the uh, most financially successful ACO in the country in the Medicare Shared Savings Program the first three years of that program, over 10% of the savings nationwide were the ACO I was part of the leadership team on. We had 2,000 independent physicians. We took care of about 500,000 contracted lives doing all of this sort of stuff. I was there for for several years, helped build some software with uh, Crimson and the advisory board and then Cerner again worked with them some and then spent about two years being a consultant traveling around the country with Premier out of Charlotte, North Carolina, visiting a lot of organizations, helping them. I was uh, by president for Applied Analytics and Clinical Performance Improvement. So again, a doctor, data, nerd guy. And then about two years ago, I came to URAC, which is a third-party independent accrediting organization in Washington, D.C. So I'm calling you today from about eight blocks northeast of the White House, where we do a lot of accreditations. We've been around for 30 years. We are the leading uh, telemedicine accreditor, uh, telehealth accreditor in the United States. Um, and we actually have some uh, international interest because of the fact that we've been uh, doing telemedicine accreditation. So I joke; I say everybody who's who's paying attention to telemedicine, welcome to the party. We have been here for a couple years, and we are on our third version of standards. And we see our job as highlighting quality and excellence in healthcare in uh, multiple fields, and telemedicine is just one of our newer ones
0: your background is pretty extensive and it gives you a unique perspective on the role of technology and healthcare which i think is very interesting and you are indeed right that this has been the year where everybody has come to the party so to speak around telemedicine and telehealth isn't that is from your perspective isn't that true
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it was it was interesting when we were developing the programs and we had a good program and we, we were accrediting organizations, uh, some of the, the large ones that you'd recognize the names. And and uh, then all this happened and everybody jumped into telemedicine and, and people were so busy trying to, to spin it up that they were they started thinking, well, wait a minute, how do we know that this is any good? I mean, because it was sort of like, you know, you're throwing all of your doctors on to, onto video visits and those sort of things. And, you know, it was like a 5,000% increase in, in build telemedicine visits. The federal government says, oh, sure. You can do telemedicine, however you want to. And they they threw back all the restrictions, all the licensing restrictions, all of those sort of things got put by the wayside because of the public health emergency. And suddenly, as I say, grandma was on was was doing a, a video visit with her doctor. And, and there comes a point where you start going, well, they look like a doctor, but I don't even know if they're any good or not. The concern now is that you can have bad medicine on a cool uh, video visit, and it's still bad medicine. And so we see ourselves as going in and sort of checking the work behind the scenes, you know. Are, are the people actually uh, credentialed to, to be doing the work that they are doing? Or Is it evidence-based medicine, or is it just somebody who looks good in a white lab coat?
0: Now that there's been this mad rush to telemedicine, which it very much needed, and we've heard, too, about loosening of some restrictions, which I think those restrictions are very important when we talk about being able to practice over state lines, so to speak. But I'd love to get your perspective on that, because through the CARES Act, there was a sort of an opening up and accessibility around telemedicine. Now we're in a situation where we're starting to reevaluate that from an accreditation perspective. Do you think that we're uh, in the right track?
2: Well, the, the throwing open of the doors, I think, was very necessary. I mean, if, if you look at all the federal r- regulations, the licensure requirements, the, the sites of service um, restrictions that were there, you know, that's why telemedicine wasn't very big, because it was very complicated. And, and to do it right, physicians, usually if you look at a big health system, back a, a year ago you'd find telemedicine was kind of you, usually there was like this one champion who was like all gung-ho for telemedicine and maybe they were dragging their department along with them and and you had some some rural areas where telemedicine was very big and and you know there's some groups out there that they're doing a fantastic job out in rural areas but but telemedicine is not just one thing I mean telemedicine is everything from remote stroke evaluations in, in a neurology uh, uh, patient to uh, emergency emergency room coverage Coverage out in rural areas to ICU coverage in rural areas to reaching underserved areas, all those sort of things, and and so it, it went from being this sort of department level. We have a champion who's doing it to all of a sudden all of the doctors are doing it, and and you have to recognize is that there wasn't a technology change that made this happen. You know, you could do video visits before. It's just nobody was paying you for it. And and it was very complicated. And And the more complicated something is in medicine, the fewer people are going to do it. And especially when you go, well, you know, if you do this wrong, the real problem is you could end up in an orange jumpsuit in jail or with a huge fine because you've committed fraud. And so doctors were like, I really don't like being used in the same sentence as fraud. And so I'm not even going to go near it. And so they were just too nervous about doing it. It's not that all of a sudden we, we gave everybody cameras. Everybody's been carrying a camera in their pocket for the past five, 10 years. Um, but now when, when you make it to where it's free and it's open and people are getting, getting to experience it, it's like all of a sudden we were giving out samples in the grocery store of telemedicine and people were trying it who would never, never would have tried it before. And they're like, this is different. And, and it addresses the complaints on access and addresses the complaints on, on some of the cost barriers and those sort of things. And so everybody jumped into the pool. The big question is, going forward, how many of those restrictions are going to come back? And, and what I do in, in Washington, DC is one of the things I think a lot of people can do is they can watch what the federal government does with Medicare Advantage. And Medicare Advantage very often is a place where, where the federal government will sort of um, you know use the program as a guinea pig to see how things go. And the fact that they're going to be covering some things going forward and the fact that there's new codes for, for, for submitting billing and those sort of things, I, I take it at face value that, that telemedicine and telehealth is, is here to stay within those programs. And therefore, you expect sort of the other payers to sort of follow suit.
0: I think you hit on a couple of really interesting points there because Whenever you adopt any kind of technology into uh, healthcare, into the care setting, there has to be, I I think that the technology part is sort of the the least difficult part or the least technical part of it. I think it really is the shift in how the users of the tool on both sides, right? The patients as well as the healthcare professionals uh, administering or using these tools, looking at this new technology as a way to either help or facilitate. In your experience, because you work with a lot of health systems around this, do you find that there is now a a sort of a more willingness within the clinical side, the the healthcare professional side to really robustly look at and maybe even reevaluate the application of telehealth and telemedicine?
2: Well, I, I think that anytime that you expose a tool to more people, and especially when you talk about in medicine, where you have these these brilliant people, and, and I'm not just talking doctors, I'm not just talking nurses, I'm talking everybody within healthcare, I mean, physical therapy, pharmacists, those sort of things, where all of a sudden a tool is available, you've got to expect smart people to come up with smart uses for good tools. And it wasn't just all the consumers who jumped into telemedicine visits, it was the, the providers who jumped into telemedicine visits too. And so you may have Somebody who never wanted to do a telemedicine visit, who all of a sudden is doing a telemedicine visit because it was the only visit type available, and they go, Well, wait a minute, this is really useful. This changes things. And so you, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. There's going to be places that are, are really pushing with telemedicine where you're going to have a whole bunch more champions who are, who are pushing it. And, and you, you really are starting to see organizations. I, I think the transition that I saw the most was organizations who had sort of this, this niche of telemedicine, and now they've got a program. And, and, and a program is so much more than just the platform. I mean, the platform are the digital tools, and, and you need to take all of your providers and you need to teach them how to talk to people on camera and how to establish rapport and those sort of things. You need to have evidence-based guidelines for what is a, an appropriate telemedicine visit versus not an appropriate telemedicine visit. But once you get them up to speed and they and they get better at it, expect them to do more with it. And how are you going to have a robust program? program within your organization where you can do that. That's everything from workflow, which I always say workflow wins. If it's not a good workflow, providers aren't going to do it, to the consent model, to how do you integrate this into care and not just create another fragmented part of the healthcare system that is this telemedicine visit, which doesn't go anywhere and it sits in its own little box. One of the things that that we do at URAC is we put our standards out on the web so you can look at our standards at a glance. And I've told a lot of people, because I've been getting this question quite a bit, I tell People go look at our standards. When you see what makes up an accredited program on URAC standards, that talks to you about everything from consent to protected health information to HIPAA to licensure to credentialing, all those sort of things. And it really talks to you about not just solving the momentary problem, but building a foundation to a program that's going to last through the years.
0: And as we think about the moving it from just a technology to a program, as you said, right? Or, uh, or actually integrated into the care delivery path. Really what we're doing now is we're elevating the concept of telemedicine and telehealth from like maybe an asynchronous video visit or even a synchronous video visit to something much broader, which is this term called digital health. So talk to me a little bit about your perspective about that broader term and how that applies, uh, in the current state. And also as we look forward.
2: When we came up with the telemedicine program a couple years ago and we built the telemedicine program, the, the experts we were working with, and the organizations that we were working with said, well, what about remote patient monitoring? And it's like, okay, well, how, how different is remote patient monitoring from telemedicine? And they're like, well, you're about 80% of the way there. And so we built a remote patient monitoring accreditation. And and I saw a news story just recently about a hospital at home, I think the Mayo Clinic, uh, where, where we're starting to say, if we have capacity issues in these areas where COVID is really strong, you know, is there something that we can do to monitor people in their home to where they don't need to take up a hospital bed? And we can save that for the people who are having uh, more serious health problems. And And it even gets into, health content? I mean, we, we hear all this talk about fake news, and there's all these things sort of spinning around, but what about fake medical information? You know, there, there's all the vaccine concerns, you know, how are we going to be distributing vaccines? How are we going to make sure those safe? What is the information on those things? And, and so everything that, that's coming into our hands these days, when it comes to medicine, how do you know to trust it? How can you rely upon it? And especially, I mean, we're not talking about which restaurant you pick on a Yelp review, we're talking about who's going to make medication decisions, on you and your loved ones and 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 how do we know w- whether they're trustworthy or not
0: With this opening of these tools, there are people, players in this space now that I never thought were players before. Zoom is being used to administer patient care, as is FaceTime, and not to mention also entrants that are coming in that are not traditional healthcare players. Amazon is making moves into the telemedicine space, and others, the whole concept of accreditation or the whole concept of putting a sort of a good housekeeping stamp of approval, so to speak, on these programs becomes very important.
2: I always say that when, when I think about the, the sort of the three levels, I, I say that regulations very often set the bar for safety. I mean, you, you think of the government as setting, you know, what is the safe way of doing something? And then I say that accreditation really sort of sets the bar for quality. It's more than just the min, the bare minimum. And so when, when I think about accreditation, I think about quality. The other thing above that is excellence. Y- you can be accredited, but there can still be room for excellence above that. And accreditation is, is meant to be that ground to where you can say, these people didn't just do the bare minimum. You know, there, there used to be the joke in medical school about what do you call the person who graduates last in your medical school class, and it's doctor. You know, and, and that's why people talk about board certification and those sort of things. I mean, when I went through board certification uh, for, fam- for as a family physician, you know, you went, you took the test, and it was it was more than licensure and those sort of things, and and you were very proud of that accomplishment. And organizations right now that are doing telemedicine, some of the telemedicine that you see is is like the tent set up in the parking lot. It's it's a temporary fixture that's there simply to meet the need, and and that's not where you want to have surgery. That's not the highest, the safest, the best. And so, how do you find that that highest, the safest, the best. But when you get accredited with UREC, you get a, a certificate and you get a gold star. And that gold star is is meant to be displayed on your website. And, and we actually have a list on our website of all the organizations that have gone through accreditation. And we intend that to be, you know, you can check and you can see who's been through our process, who has done it. When it comes to the care of your loved ones, you, you want to be more discriminating. You want to be able to, to look and see, are they doing what they need to do? Now, if they're a fantastic organization, there's some fantastic organizations that are doing tell medicine, you know, their reputation may be enough to where you trust them as, a, as an institution. But, but if it's somebody who who you don't know about, or if you want to know that they're actually doing everything right, because a great organization can do some things poorly, and you can't tell because they're sort of hiding under the umbrella. But if, if you want to know that their telemedicine or their telehealth program, as the, the name is currently changing for organizations, it has really been checked by somebody independent. The federal government even says that some of our programs that we we can have deeming authority to where if we recognize a program as being accredited, the federal government will pay for it. It. So I mean, that's a sign of sort of our reputation. Um, but, but when it comes to, you know, if my child is sick at two o'clock at night, and, and I can't get them in to see their regular doctor, who can I trust to, to, to give me medical advice in that moment?
0: Do you see as we look forward, do you see that digital health and telemedicine will start to expand even outside of our, our country?
2: Well, I, I think it's actually already expanded outside of our country. We're seeing the same sort of champion-driven model in in other parts of the world. Uh, there's an organization in Egypt right now where they where they're doing some telemedicine work, trying to to uh, extend access throughout Africa. And 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 so they came to us and they said, you know, we, we see that you are doing telemedicine accreditation in the United States. We want to check our program against the best guidelines in the world. And so so they came to us and and so they were our first international client. The United States has not cornered the market on technology. There's other parts of the world that have wonderful technology, wonderful infrastructure. You know, one of the things that we get into the United States is, is the broadband gap and the, the high speed access gap. You know, not all telemedicine has to be a video visit where you're on with a provider. There's some wonderful things about uh about phone-based telemedicine where you're doing things like behavioral visits and counseling visits and those sort of things that that fit perfectly well within that it doesn't all have to be the slick broadband based video visits but we we need to understand that that how it looks in your life should be at least uh trusted and and excellent and it doesn't have to be just one version of it that fits everybody
0: as we look kind of forward into 2021 um, we got a lot of things ahead of us right we have vaccines that are coming. We have a massive uh, uh, approach and, and transformation the way healthcare is going to be. I don't think we're going to be the same after we get through the, the rough part of this pandemic. What are your thoughts around digital health, telemedicine? How do you think that's going to evolve?
2: As technology has changed, I think that, that care has changed. And whether that be going from X rays to CT scanners to MRIs, you saw the technology advance and therefore the care changed along with it. When it comes to, you know, when, when I was practicing, I had a stack of phone messages on my desk that were the, the phone notes that I would go through, and that was my version of telemedicine. Now we're seeing that that this tool is now available and, and really smart people are going to adapt it in different ways to solve different problems depending upon where you are. I think that, that telemedicine and digital digital health have, it, have a remarkable chance to fill in some of our access issues, some of our health equity issues. At a time during my career, I was like the only doctor in a county in Iowa. You know, when I focused on telemedicine, it, w- it was on rural health. And I think there's a very strong place for rural health and telemedicine for access. But we also have underserved areas that are cities, and, and their neighborhoods and, and those sort of things. I, I think that it's, it's another tool and, and it will fill in some of the gaps that we have found. It may create other gaps if we're not wise in our use of it. You know, you don't want to make it to where, you know, is, is telemedicine only available in seven states? Or do you have to be licensed in all seven states to practice medicine or those sort of things? And so, so we have to watch how the federal government will sort of dial back in some of the regulations. You were talking before about FaceTime and, and those sort of things. You know, You have to have a secure platform. You don't just want to be doing telemedicine visits where somebody's, you know, walking down the, the freezer aisle at Walmart talking on their phone, having a behavioral health visit. That's not secure for the patient or the provider. Now that this tool is available, we're going to see some places where it's overused. You know, not every telemedicine visit should result in an in-person visit. Not every telemedicine visit should result in a prescription being prescribed. And just because something's on the web doesn't mean it's true. And so we we need to provide people with tools to actually check the trustworthiness of, of what they're doing, you know, you sort of come out of this emergency to where, you know, whatever I can do is is good enough. Just just get me a visit, get me a test, those sort of things to how does this become a regular part of my health care to where it meets my needs, where it's it's good medicine, where it is tied into my my lifetime of care. As a primary care physician, I always worry about further fragmentation of, of, of the care continuum. And I think that we're going to see new tools arrive. I mean, there's going to be some wonderful things with with home monitoring to where it's going to change the dynamic that people face. you know, I would feel much better if if my elderly parent had some sort of device in their home where if they needed to be checked for a health problem or a heart problem, where they could do something that way, and there's tools that are becoming available there. I say that I'm I'm looking to the FDA and the federal government to control some of the regulations on safety for some of these tools and and expect those to ratchet up. But we still need good organizations out there that know healthcare, that that can tell you that, that the tools are good, and the program is good because just because I give somebody a really nice scalpel doesn't make them a great surgeon. Just because I give somebody a really good camera doesn't make them a good telemedicine provider.
0: Yeah, I'm reminded of that saying necessity is the mother of invention. But it seems to me the more we talk about this, right, that accreditation is also the maybe the father of quality, right? Because you, you got to have both as you move forward.
2: Well, I'm a big fan of accreditation, or I wouldn't be working at an accrediting organization. <laughs> I mean, let, let's be clear about that. I'm, I'm a bit biased. And yet I know that there are some times where, where someone can go through a program and they can check all the boxes and say they're going to do it a certain way. But if nobody's there to check on them, they don't really keep it up. And so we always say that accreditation shouldn't be about the, the three days where somebody's looking over your shoulder, seeing how you're doing. It should be every day so that you're providing the best care that you can.
0: If people want to learn a little bit more about your organization and yourself, what are some ways that they can find you online?
2: Well, we are at urec.org. Urec is U-R-A-C, and I I think we're going to put a link with some of the information that we send out. I'm out there on LinkedIn. uh, You know, Sean Griffin at Urec, you'll you'll find me pretty easily there. But I I think that uh, you know just keep learning, keep seeing what you can do in this space. If you have questions, you know, reach out to us uh, through our website, and we're happy to help. Um, I I say that uh, the reason why I'm here is because I could only reach about six thousand people a year with my stethoscope, and yet the things that we're doing now, I figure. I can help a a couple million people a year uh, with the care that they receive.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for your time today and sharing your great insights. Appreciate it.
2: It was great to be here. Happy to come back anytime.
1: All right. Special thanks to Sean for coming on the show. Certainly appreciate his willingness to sit down with you, Chris, for a few minutes and chat a little bit about kind of what we're seeing in the telehealth space and kind of innovation, evolution, maturity uh, kind of component there. So interesting work they're doing and and great insights. All right. Uh, Well, we are getting close. To uh, wrapping up our first recording of 2021. Uh, But before we do, I wanted to point out just a couple of things. If you're a subscriber to the TPS report, which is our weekly email, you've seen probably a link to this. But our friends over at Binary Fountain have some on-demand webinars. Uh, These are really cool, quick, like 15, 20-minute webinars that they did through kind of the November, December time frame. Uh, So you can go check those out on their website. I was a part of one back uh, mid, mid-December, mid uh, talking about healthcare brand management and some some key opportunities for 2021. So go check those out. Uh, we'll have more things to talk about in the coming months, if you will. And I'm looking forward to maybe getting somewhere in person this year. Who knows? I hate to be too predictive. At the very least, we'll see everybody in a virtual sense, I'm sure. And then let's maybe move over to some recommendations. What do you got today?
0: Reid, I'm going to mention something that I have... Been a big fan of, and I have not mentioned it before as a recommendation. I'm going to today. You may know that I like to do a lot of baking, but I also like to cook. I used to be a chef in my earlier days. And so um, I have come across some of the best cookingware I have ever used. And it's a company called Swiss Diamond. They make pots, pans, variety of different things. So amazing and such high-quality cookware. And I think part of it is because they have this nonstick surface that they allude to the fact that they have diamonds in it. I don't know if that's actually true or not. I mm. guess I guess it's a broader definition of diamonds. But nonetheless, their cookware is amazing. Not only is it designed to convect heat appropriately when it's on a electric or a gas burner – but the surface is food-resistant. I mean, you could cook anything in this with no oils or whatever, and I have just become such a big fan of them that I have actually started to collect various different kinds of cookware. It started with a simple pan where you make your eggs, right? For you know, for breakfast, you make a couple mm-hmm, scrambled mm-hmm. eggs. And then it evolved. I have this like pan now that I can make paella in. And then over the holidays, I got from my in-laws, they gave me a nice grilling pan that I can use inside in the wintertime when you can't grill outside because it's too cold because here in minnesota it gets too cold adds that nice grill mark and i use that over the weekend and i'm telling you big fan so i am going to recommend swiss diamond cookware and if you go to swissdiamond.com you can check them all out i, I tell you you buy one of these you'll never go back to another kind of pan
1: there you go cooking with diamonds all right <laughs> I'm gonna recommend something. I actually watched this a while back. It's a Netflix show. But if you like uh, stand-up comedy, got a guy. If you have not heard of him, Nate Bergotsi, uh, He's actually here in Nashville and is hilarious. He is absolutely hilarious. And he's real kind of. He's pretty dry, kind of deadpan, you know. So it's. I like his humor. I also listen to his podcast called uh, the Nate Land Podcast, which is really funny. He has a Netflix special called The Tennessee Kid, and it is uh, it is hysterical. And it, it's clean, so if you've got, you know, kids or teenagers or, you know, somebody, they, they may not get the joke, but, uh, you know, certainly you can watch it with anybody at any time, so, but it's, a uh, man, it is funny. It is so funny, and so if we have a few minutes here and there, uh, we'll even just flip it on and just watch a few minutes, so, anyway, The Tennessee Kid, Nate Bragazzi. I have to check it out, that sounds really interesting. Well, there it is, folks, uh, episode 205. And as uh, in the can, uh, thanks again for the support. Thanks again for helping us kick off calendar year number five on the Touchpoint podcast. Again, touchpoint.health is the website. Rate review, subscribe wherever you happen to be listening or streaming. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell, tell an enemy. I don't It doesn't really matter. Just Tell, <laughs> tell somebody uh, about the show. We certainly appreciate it. Go to the website. sign up for the TPS report. And for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.